So it's the treasury bonds and the treasury notes uh, that are rising, uh, you know, as you as you go out longer on the duration spectrum. And so the Fed has strong control over the front end of the curve. They they're holding it near zero. Uh, and whereas the long end of the curve, like a 10-year treasury or a 20-year treasury or a 30-year treasury, those yields are going up. Uh, and so that's in some ways that's that's basically a, what you'd want a healthy market to look like. You want to have longer, you want to have a positive yield curve, meaning that longer duration securities are uh, higher yielding than short-term uh, instruments. Uh, and the problem there is that because the, the economy is so levered, including the federal government, but then also private debt, uh, high interest rates, uh, you know, basically result in insolvency. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin. Swan is the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys, instant buys, and wires up to $10 million. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Lynn Alden, investment strategist, and Vijay Boyapati, author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, join us. I'm glad you found your way here. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Swan Signal Live. This is episode 54. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan, and I've got two very well-known guests today that I know. There's a lot of excitement about uh, having these two together, Lynn Alden and DJ Boyapati. Uh, before we dive into the show, uh, just a quick uh, discussion about or uh, update about Swan. Uh, this uh, show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Of course, uh, we are dedicated to Bitcoin education through shows like this, through our YouTube channel, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. We're everywhere trying to promote Bitcoin education, talk about what's really happening here, fight the FUD, fight the, uh, you know, all the crypto stuff that's out there and get people really focused on this asset that is the only real player on the global monetary stage. Uh, you can accumulate this incredible asset that is the best performing of the past decade uh, in the world at swanbitcoin.com. We make it as easy as possible to make automatic recurring buys uh, of your Bitcoin. And uh, you can simply log in, set up an account. We can go from zero to buying Bitcoin in, in as little as five minutes. That's about 70% of our users are almost instantly verified. Uh, and it can take up to five days, but usually typically, you know, no more than a day or two, start buying your Bitcoin. Uh, you know, own your future. That's what I like to say, you know, own your future. Uh, own your family's future. Prepare for a future where uh, Bitcoin will be much more widely used, uh, where we may be fighting uh, massive inflation and money printing that is going beyond even what we're seeing uh, these days. And we'll talk about uh, you know wh where things might be going on that front, monetary policy uh, here in the United States and around the world. Uh, also wanted to mention, speaking of around the world, uh, SWAN is now available internationally uh, with wire transfers. Uh, you can go to swanbitcoin.com slash private and check out our uh, service that's catering to corporations, to trusts, uh, entities, and to high net worth individuals who are looking to accumulate meaningful positions in Bitcoin. Uh, and like I said, those are uh, that uh, service is available internationally uh, with uh, wire transfers. Uh, feel free to write into our team if you have any questions about using Swan uh, from a country outside of the United States. That's at swanbitcoin.com slash support. We have a fantastic team there that will answer all of your questions and walk you through your journey uh, to accumulating a meaningful 
position of Bitcoin that can lead to um, really generational life-changing wealth. So let's get into this show today with Lynn and Vijay. Lynn is an investment strategist. You've known her from being on this show many times, uh, many shows talking about Bitcoin and economics and monetary policy uh, on, on many well-known shows. Uh, Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming back again. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And Vijay Boripati is a software engineer. He's the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, which I'm pretty sure just about every Bitcoiner has read at this point. Uh, Vijay, welcome, uh, welcome, and thanks for coming back as well. Thanks, Brady. It's actually a, a huge uh, pleasure for me because I'm a big fan of Lynn's. And I uh, I wrote on Twitter that whenever Lynn writes something on, on Bitcoin, you got to grab a cup of coffee and a comfortable, comfortable place to sit and and read it and so i spent my weekend reading a bunch of lynn's pieces so uh, i'm excited to to speak with lynn today yeah definitely the same on my side as well really happy to meet you yes it's really fun to be able to bring uh two amazing bitcoiners together to talk for the first time so this is really a treat for myself and uh, for everyone watching thank you all for being here okay so let's dive in first talking about uh, a common issue that is that is raised by people who are getting uh, kind of new to Bitcoin and getting into the space and trying to go through and understand the various potential pitfalls that Bitcoin could face now or in the future. And one of those is invariably uh, Bitcoin security when people find out about the diminishing block reward. How are we going to pay miners and why are they, you know, why would they have an incentive in the future as this block reward decreases over time to you know, continue to secure the network. So Lynn has written a piece to examine this uh, about Bitcoin's fee market, being able to take over for that block reward as a way to incentivize miners to secure the network. Uh, and I'd just love to hear you introduce that piece and then uh, start a conversation with Vijay and yourself about uh, this potential, this FUD that comes out. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, when we look at the kind of the, the full host of, of different kind of Bitcoin criticisms, a lot of them make no sense. Uh, and uh, but if you if you step back, there are, you know, it is a project that's been 12 years in the making. And there are, you know, kind of uh, kind of tests that Bitcoin has faced along the way. And some of those are really real tests that kind of, you know, that, that challenge the thesis of the protocol and then see if it succeeds and see if it's as resilient as people think. And so one of the legitimate tasks that Bitcoin has coming up as we move later into this decade is the shift towards uh, a fee-based security model. Uh, and so when I initially invested in Bitcoin back uh, almost a year ago now, I, I sketched out kind of how, uh, you know, how the math works for this because I wanted to make sure, uh, you know, for myself that it, you know, had a good kind of long-term uh, option. Uh, but, you know, I didn't write about it publicly a lot. And so I really wanted to put a piece together that quantified it and dug deeper into it than I had previously looked into it. And so basically, if you look at uh, some of the criticisms uh, that people have of Bitcoin, usually from the Ethereum side, uh, is this claim that basically after after the block subsidies uh, diminish to a very low level, that Bitcoin will be unsecure and that it basically needs inflation uh, to maintain that security. Uh, the other kind of side of the coin is, is people say like, oh, it's not an issue at all. Uh, you know, we're not, it's not even worth talking about. It's just, you know, uh, Bitcoin's just, you know, it, it's perfect since inception. And I think it's one of those things, it's it, the truth is somewhere in the middle where you want to, you want to pay attention to it. You want to examine it uh, because Bitcoin is really the collective, uh, you know, work of, of you know, all the people in the community that they keep it running, keep it updated. Uh, and so basically it's some, it's kind of one of Bitcoin's final tests that it's going to go through on its way towards uh, maturity. And so if you look at, you know, Bitcoin's history, 
uh, when it was incepted, of course, it had a pretty high inflation rate. Uh, and if you if you chart, you know, um, Bitcoin's, uh, you know, security spend, basically the minor revenue as a percentage of market cap, you know, so over time, Bitcoin's uh, absolute security uh, spend kept going up. Uh, but the percentage of the security spend as, as a percentage of market capitalization kept going down, which is what we'd expect as it matures, because in the very beginning, it was a crazy high number. It was like 40%, and then it was like 30%, 20%, 10%. And that's a very high amount of spending uh, because it's a very inflationary protocol in the beginning as it, as it went through its initial distribution phase. Uh, but as it matured, those percentages have gotten down pretty low, which is, which is a healthy state for the network. And so, you know, last year, the security spend was about 2.5% of the average market capitalization. And for the first two months of this year, it was down to about 2%. Now, the, the way you ideally want to see over time is that that gets down to a low but stable level, meaning that it, it, it basically hits a certain plateau where you're still having minimal security, uh, but without having, you know, the, the, the kind of the high transaction costs or the, uh, you know, the, the inflation that was obviously present in Bitcoin's earlier period uh, when it was you know, programmed to issue more coins. And so overall, what you want to see take over is you want to see higher and higher fees. And so basically the piece kind of goes through and catalogs how much fees you need in order to have a reasonable security model uh, and how that would work and what that would look like. And then of course the overall you know view there is that you know large transactions, you know, they can pay pretty high fees because it's, it's still a very small percentage of their transaction. And then of course if you want to have smaller transactions, you eventually want to batch those on the secondary layers and then settle those in, in a larger transaction on the main chain, which is actually not unlike how, say, Visa transactions ultimately settle, settle through deeper networks, like deeper connections like Fedwire. Uh, and so that's kind of a lot of uh, critics compare uh, Bitcoin's limited throughput uh, to you know something like Visa, but that's not really an apples to orange comparison because one is final settlement uh, and one is just a, a surface layer on a much deeper uh, uh, system. And so the, the piece just kind of walks through some of the risks uh, that Bitcoin will go through, but also how it can how it can navigate those and how like it's it's they're not economically insurmountable issues. It's just yet another kind of like mature test uh, for Bitcoin on the way to its its you know kind of long term state. So VJ, I, I know that you've been answering this question question i'm sure a lot over the years as well and have you know an understanding of the protocol and how it will evolve and lynn in this piece uh does a great job with a couple of tables um taking a look at the percentage of the market cap uh year by year that uh, was made up by the security spend so we went all the way from 2011 at 46.9 percent of the market cap was on security spend uh, all the way to 2020 where it was about two and a half percent it looks like we're at uh, about, let's see, another, uh, 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 about the same uh, going into 2021. Is that right, Lynn? It's down about 2% in the first two months. Yeah. 2%. There we go. Yeah, I was looking for that number. So down a little bit in the first two months of, of 2021 as well. So that trend is continuing. Um, so Vijay, are you concerned about Bitcoin security in the future? Do you think it can develop a robust and sustainable fee model that will continue to, to keep the network secure? Uh, I, I definitely think it's an issue worth considering and it's one of the areas where uh, there, there are legitimate concerns about Bitcoin's uh, long-term future because we, we don't really know what's going to happen. So the 
the way miners are compensated uh, it comes from two sources. One is the block subsidy and the other is transaction fees. And as we know, because of the halving, the block subsidy decreases over time. Uh, and what we hope is that transaction fees will increase over time to sort of make up for the loss. Uh, I, I would just say that we need to question the premise of like, we need a certain amount of security to secure transactions on the blockchain. The way to think about security of a transaction on the Bitcoin network is kind of like a castle. Uh, when when you have when you post a transaction, you get one confirmation. It's like one layer of bricks or stone around that transaction. And each block that you get uh, subsequent to the posting and confirmation of that transaction is an extra layer of security. So after 100 confirmations, you have a wall which is 100 bricks high, so it's much more secure. Um, now, one of the things that's interesting is that I think in a lot of cases, uh, people are asking for way more security than is necessary. I mean, if you're transferring $50 or $100 uh, on the Bitcoin network, there are a lot of exchanges which require six confirmations, which is really ridiculous. You don't need that amount of security to secure a transaction which is worth that little. Um, so, you know, in the future, I think really what's going to happen is that you, you can configure this, even if, if it's the case that we have a smaller block subsidy and the transaction fees don't necessarily catch all the way up. You can configure this as an exchange, for instance, and say, well, six confirmations isn't good enough anymore. We Maybe we need 15 confirmations or something like that. Uh, so I think it, it's important to, to question the premise that the amount of uh, capital that's going to miners through transaction fees is um, like a limiting factor. You can just change the amount of security you want depending on the size of the transaction. And I can imagine in the future uh, when the block subsidy has mostly gone away, say in the next 15 years or so, people who are doing very large transactions, uh, they may either uh, require the recipient of that transaction may require a very, very large number of confirmations on the blockchain, or they may break it into separate transactions because transferring a billion dollars, you're going to need a lot of uh, confirmations before you feel confident that you actually have that billion dollars and it can't be rolled back. Uh, so that's that's one area I would just say that uh, we need to think about because we in in the early days when the block subsidy made up most of the compensation that miners got, uh, we were almost certainly overpaying for security for most transactions. I mean, there were people who were doing these almost microtransactions on the blockchain back in the days of Satoshi Dice, where every every small gamble that you did was written on the blockchain. You you probably didn't need one or two or three confirmations for that. Um, so. We need, to, we need to think of security not so much as a switch, but as a spectrum. And uh, people who are using Bitcoin and accepting Bitcoin can choose where on the spectrum they want to be. So, Lynn, what, what percentage of the total market cap do you think Bitcoin needs to maintain uh, in order to re, you know, retain security against a potential 51% attack? Uh, so that's an open question. I, I kind of break it into two parts. One is, uh, ideally, you want a high absolute amount 
so that it's, it's costly to attempt to attack at all. And then from there, uh, you also want a, a sufficiently high percentage uh, to make uh, attacks uneconomic uh, and to basically thwart some of the attempts to disrupt the blockchain. Uh, because otherwise, you'd have a case where you could say short it and then attack it. And you know, obviously, we saw, for example, there was FUD uh, from you know what, what people were incorrectly calling a double spend uh, on Bitcoin uh, earlier this year, which was actually just a block reorganization. But if you had, say, a legitimate um, uh, attack, uh, that would you know damage the somewhat the reputation of the network. Uh, and so, ideally, you want to have a sufficiently high and and a sufficient percentage to avert those. Now, there's no absolute percentage that is known that is it, basically that it could it could change over time. Uh, and so in my piece, I used uh, 0.5 to 1.5% uh, as kind of a, you know, kind of a, a broad range for uh, what I think is a, probably a, a long-term target because that takes into account, uh, you know, basically making transaction fees economic, right? So you're not, at, at, to VJ's point, you're not overpaying for security. You're not paying ridiculously high transaction fees, uh, but you also do have a sufficiently high hurdle rate. Uh, to even attempt an attack, and uh, also because Bitcoin uses customized hardware, uh, you know that only has a few purposes. Uh, you know that basically, you know, people often calculate the cost of attack as just the electricity cost, whereas really you would need a massive amount of hardware, which is actually kind of the the, the main limiter uh, for Bitcoin. Whereas there are other chains that, for example, use GPUs, which you could you could rent cloud GPU time, for example. You could basically. Uh, you know, only acquire the hardware for the for the period you're doing the attack. Whereas a Bitcoin, obviously, that's not really an option. And so, uh, it's I, I've seen it described uh, by some as you know, uh, bas basically, the Bitcoin secure in practice, but not in theory, in the sense that we don't know the exact security spend that is ideal to protect it, other than that it's been very solid for 12 years, hasn't really had credible threats, and so far, you know, two percent uh, spend on security has been more than sufficient. Uh, but the overall kind of modeling as you go out. Uh, obviously, as as Bitcoin gets a larger, larger market capitalization, you want to be sure that that the amount is is sufficient without you know overly securing itself. And one thing I point out in the article is that Bitcoin doesn't necessarily optimize for, for security. Security is a byproduct of a very well in, well designed incentive mechanism, and so Bitcoin uh, just follows the supply demand characteristics that it goes through. Uh, miners allocate capital to where it makes sense. Uh, and so overall, that incentive mechanism has worked very well for 12 years, and Bitcoin has had sufficient security. So Vijay, this is another reason why maintaining small blocks is so important. And we often talk about, as Bitcoiners, that it's, you know, the decentralization is the main reason why, you know, small blocks have to be made a priority because decentralization needs to be the priority for this network. Otherwise, you know, none of the, uh, you know, follow on properties can really be maintained reliably. Uh, but it's not often talked about that competition for that block space uh, and the related like fee market that develops uh, is, you know, extremely important as well. Yeah, so I usually don't give that argument because I think there there is a, a valid rebuttal that would come from someone who's a big blocker, which is, well, okay, if we allow the block size to be unlimited, maybe the trans individual transaction fees would be very small, but in aggregate, because we allow an unlimited number of transactions, uh, we will collect the same amount in um, total fees. The problem I have with that is that if you allow... Un, an unlimited block size, then you're going to 
have this gigantic amount of data being transferred across the network and uh, really blockchains are very inefficient because everyone has to maintain the entire state that of everything that's ever happened, the, the history of the ledger. Uh, and so if you allow arbitrarily small transactions, every computer is going to have to keep a record of every arbitrarily small transaction for the entire history. And so very few people will be able to afford to do that. Um, and that, that is what would really harm the decentralization of the network. So I think, I, I, I usually give two reasons why I don't think the, the block size should be changed. One is that, which is that it would hurt the decentralization of the network and only people affluent enough could afford computers that uh, could run on the network and, and keep the entire history. And that's kind of actually what you see with Ethereum. If you, if you try and run an Ethereum full node, you'll see that you need a very, very beefy computer. Uh, and, and syncing that node takes a very long time compared to Bitcoin, where you can run Bitcoin on a Raspberry Pi for, you know, a computer that you could buy for $10 or $20. Um, the other argument I give is that I think uh, the immutability of the protocol is critical to people's uh, confidence in the monetary policy. If you can change one of the consensus rules, and one of the consensus rules is the block size, if, if, you, if that's something that's easy to do, if you can get a few companies together uh, and say, we want a bigger block size, and this, this happened in 2017, a bunch of very important companies in the space tried to modify the block size. If that was possible, then why should I trust the uh, inflation schedule? I, don't, I wouldn't trust it anymore if a bunch of companies could come together and, and change uh, the block size. So those are the reasons I give. Uh, one is decentralization and one is the immutability of the protocol. I think those are two critical aspects to Bitcoin's value proposition. So let's take a quick look at some a couple of related potential security issues. Um, and that is mining pool centralization is one I've been hearing a lot on Clubhouse lately of, of new Bitcoiners that come in. And, and then related to that, mining hardware production centralization. So VG, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, do you have any concerns or how would you answer someone who's new to Bitcoin, comes onto the Clubhouse stage and says, hey, uh, look, there's, there's just a few pools. And if you combine two of them, it's over 50% of the hash rate. And uh, there's really only one or two major producers of, uh, of ASIC machines. Uh, and that's a potential security flaw. Well, it's, a, it's absolutely a leg legitimate concern. I think with with mining pools, the, the first argument is that a mining pool doesn't necessarily control the hash power. It directs the hash power. And anyone who uh, commits their hash power to a mining pool can always pull that hash power and send it to another mining pool or mine themselves. And uh, you would believe that people who are mining uh, have an economic incentive to want the Bitcoin network to succeed because they're being rewarded in Bitcoins. So, you know, one argument is that uh, the, the concentration of hash power in mining pools is a little bit misleading as a, as a measure of centralization. And there's also been some development um, by uh, um, Matt Corallo on, on helping to, to, to relieve this problem with better hash. I, I don't know the exact details, but sort of giving more power back to the individual miners who are participating in pools. Uh, rather than the, the pool operators themselves. 
The other thing I would say is that Satoshi Nakamoto anticipated this threat from the very beginning, and he talks about this in the white paper, uh, or he talks about if there was an attacker who who managed to, to accumulate 51% of the hash power, they should, the protocol is designed in such a way that they have a greater incentive to just mine coins rather than to double spend. Uh, because the cost of double spending is quite high and it's fought with risk. Even if you have 51% of the hash power, you're not guaranteed to succeed in uh, mining every single block. And so you have to expend uh, a great deal of energy to try and steal back a payment when you can just mine the coins which are valuable in and of themselves. Now, that's, that's the economic argument that Satoshi Nakamoto gave. And his, his argument was actually kind of deductive rather than uh, inductive. Uh, so, so it wasn't really based on any evidence because he wrote this before the Bitcoin network was even created. But since then, people have actually looked at uh, the empirical evidence. And th there was a recent study which showed that in periods where there was uh, hash power concentration uh, in, a, in a few pools, there was no double spend attacks, uh, even even in cases where there was a potential to execute these double spend attacks. There weren't any double spend attacks, uh, and I have a quote here that I'll, I'll just quickly read to you from this paper. Uh, it, it says, "We conclude that the historically observed mining pool concentration does not indicate a higher risk of double spending attacks." Hence, our result directly contradicts the common belief that concentration is harmful. This result demonstrates the well-known economic insight that feasibility does not imply desirability. So sort of both deductively and inductively, we, we come to believe that uh, double spending attacks are very rare. They, people who have the power to do that, uh, execute them, don't have the incentive to do that. And we, we've actually seen this over the history of Bitcoin. The thing that really uh, I think is a greater risk um, to Bitcoin is not an economic attack. A double spend attack is an economic attack. The greater risk, in my view, is a political attack on mining uh, because nation states often act in economically irrational ways to further their political ends. And, and you know, classic example of this is warfare. When a company declares war on its neighbor, it's usually not for economic reasons. It's because of some political end. And you could imagine that uh, a nation state decides that Bitcoin's existence is a threat to them. Like they don't want to allow their citizenry to avail themselves of the ability to save and transact outside the state's jurisdiction. Or potentially a nation state could say this is a this is a threat to our control of our monetary policy and, and they may want to attack Bitcoin mining for that reason. Um, and of all the nation states with the desire to uh, attack Bitcoin mining. Uh, the Chinese state is the one with by far the greatest capability because of the, the concentration of uh, expertise and, and um, uh, companies with, uh, you know, the ability to manufacture these chips and also because there are so many mining pools in China uh, uh, and mining facilities in China because they, they've had this long history of overbuilding uh, energy production. Um, and so miners tend to go to China where the electricity is incredibly cheap. Um, Sichuan pro province is an example of this. So the Chinese state has the potential more than any other state to attack Bitcoin mining. And you could imagine potentially 
uh, that they they appropriate uh, these manufacturing companies and and they they nationalize these mining operations and and then they have the power to potentially censor transactions on the Bitcoin network or just pull that hash power away from the Bitcoin network, which would you know dramatically decrease security in Bitcoin and potentially reduce confidence in Bitcoin. Now, there is a nuclear option that I, I haven't seen many people talk about, but I think is a really important thing to think about. And the nuclear option is changing the proof of work function. So, so Bitcoin's proof of work function is SHA-256. And all of these companies that are developing these ASIC chips, very, very specialized chips to do one thing, which is run SHA-256 extremely efficiently. So do as many SHA-256 hashes per second as possible. Uh, if Bitcoin's proof of work function were to change, all of that capital expend expenditure, all of those computers, all those ASICs would be rendered obsolete instantly. Um, now, this would be a very, very contentious thing to do this. Uh, you, you would need to get a, a, a huge consensus from participants in the network and investors. Uh, and I don't think something like this could ever happen except under gravest extreme. But the existence of this nuclear option, I think, is enough of a check that any nation state attempting an attack would have to consider the fact that all of this hardware that they're appropriating could be made worthless instantly if um, if the Bitcoin network switched from, for example, SHA-256 to SHA-512. So that's the, that's the biggest concern I have is a nation state attack, but I do think there is the potential of this nuclear option, as messy as it would be, getting everyone to sort of switch uh, proof of work function function at once would be incredibly difficult. There'd be a, lo a lot of infighting. All the honest miners would oppose it, even if the network was being attacked by uh, by the Chinese state controlling the dishonest miners. Uh, so you'd have a bunch of people who were legitimate, honest participants on the network opposing this, but it, it is an option that could be used uh, in case of an extreme situation like a nation state attack against Bitcoin mining. Lynn, a lot there. Anything that you would like to add on or react to uh, in this uh, this thought of mining pool centralization, hardware production centralization, nation state attack on mining pools, for instance? I think he summarized it very well. And, and I agree that the, the nation state angle is is the one to think about because uh, you know, as we've seen in in, a, in an economic sense, the incentive structure works very well. And so basically, uh, the, the main risk to watch out for is ones that are not acting economically. Uh, and so I, I kind of talked about how, you know, I people, I think, overstate sometimes the risk of having, uh, you know, the, the mining capacity that, that exists in China, uh, because, uh, you know, as Vijay pointed out, the mining pools, you know, you basically miners can pull their hash power away and basically move away from that. We actually saw some of that happen years ago when a mining pool uh, got close to, to, to 50% and they started getting criticized for it. And they basically, you know, miners just, just kind of spread themselves out again. Uh, and so overall, I do think that the, the one of the later tests for Bitcoin is its ability to develop a fee market and to resist the potential for nation state attacks, which are not necessarily separate risks. Because as you get 
deeper into the 2020s uh, if Bitcoin does not have a sufficient, you know, if it's, if it's got a pretty small percentage of its market capitalization spent on security, it becomes a little bit more vulnerable to those sorts of tail risks uh, from, from actors that are not necessarily economic. Whereas if it has developed a pretty persistent fee market, uh, it makes it a lot more costly and a much bigger operation to even attempt it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for the thorough explanation, both VJ and the follow-up, Lynn. Uh, we've got a related question that could be considered from from our YouTube chat. Could be considered a security issue, uh, or or not. But it, it's it's. I think it could be a considered uh, considered a security issue, especially for the value of the network, the market cap, and and the the price. Um, are you worried about? whales bitcoin whales so despite a one trillion dollar market cap uh there are holdings that are concentrated still in a few hand, relatively few hands uh and would like you this person would like you to uh to refute or explain this particular um argument against bitcoin uh lynn you want to jump into this one yeah, I'll answer that first, I guess. So I actually did a, a post a while back that showed that the that the U.S. stock market is extremely concentrated. And so 10% of it uh, is held. I mean, 10% of the, of the people hold like 88% of the U.S. stock market capitalization. And the other 90% are basically picking over the last 12%. And so that's a very concentrated market. And it's actually surprising considering how big the market is that it still managed to be that concentrated. If you go down to say, newer tech stocks, a lot of them are even more concentrated, which makes sense because it hasn't been around long enough to really dist distribute that share base. And so often the case, the founder still has a big chunk of it. Uh, and then you have a lot of other early investors still have big chunks of it. And as it grows and matures, eventually some of those founders, you know, sell off or, you know, if it goes on long enough, they pass away or they, you know, basically in one way or another, those shares get more and more distributed over time. Uh, and so if you look at Bitcoin, the, the, it's often overstated how concentrated it is because a lot of the really, really big sources of concentration are custodians that are holding Bitcoins for thousands or millions of, of their clients. Uh, and so the actual, you know, the, the amount of the Bitcoin that's held by individuals uh, for themselves is actually is, is not as concentrated as the extreme numbers that are normally given. It still is quite concentrated, but it's not some of the crazy numbers that are often reported, like, say, you know, like 2% owns like 98% or whatever, whatever the, the really uh, extreme numbers you hear are, that is failing to take into account the custodian factor. It's assuming that one address is one person, which is not how it works. Uh, and there, there has been some analysis on this by places like Glassnode and, and Willy Wu, uh, who works with them, where, uh, you know, you, there's actually more sophisticated breakdowns uh, of who owns what. And so there's a big, there's a big bucket for, uh, you know, early miners that are believed to belong to Satoshi, uh, you know, that that's its own kind of category. And then you have, and a lot of those are, you know, some of those are believed to be gone forever. Uh, we, we don't really know the state of those coins, but there's a good chance that they'll never be moved and that the original entity might not even have access to them. Uh, but that's always something to be aware of. And then, so as you go out to other types of coins, you have those, like, like I said, really big custodian wallets. Uh, and then you have uh, legitimate whale wallets uh, and, you know, the, these, these big entities that control Bitcoin for themselves or for a small group. And so that's, in that sense, it ends up looking more and more like the stock market where it is quite concentrated, but not to the extreme case that it's often portrayed as with really kind of superficial analysis of, of assuming one address is one person. Vijay, would you like to weigh in on this one? 
I'm not really concerned because, you know, I think this is part of the process of monetization. As the price rises, people are going to want to diversify their holdings in Bitcoin to live a better lifestyle, for instance, or to buy that Lambo that they've been dreaming of for a long time. Um, I think the concern here is that there's a, a large fraction of the supplies held by these whales and that they have the power to manipulate the market. Uh, and, and when you see these periodic crashes in Bitcoin's price, I think there are two main factors. One, one of them is occasionally the market gets over leveraged and the leverage needs to be sort of cleared away. And the other is that uh, you can occasionally have a whale dump a big chunk of Bitcoin in the market. And sometimes if you look at the order book, you'll see this um, steep wall, uh, which is someone posting a chunk of their supply saying, I'm, I'm ready to, to sell. And, and I, then an analogy I like to give of this is when the price of Bitcoin rises, it's kind of like the ocean crashing against a big ice, uh, iceberg and continually crashing and crashing and the price is going up. And eventually the price gets high enough that one of these ice sheets breaks off and crashes into the ocean. And that's like a chunk of supply that comes from one of these whales who's hit some price target, uh, whether it be 10,000 or 50 or 100,000, where they think, well, I, I want to diversify some of my holdings and, and um, use that to improve my lifestyle or to diversify into other assets, stocks, bonds, gold, whatever it is. Uh, and this is this is just how monetization works. This is how the distribution of a monetary good happens. There is no magic silver bullet where you can, you know, give everyone uh, the supply of of Bitcoin in a perfectly egalitarian way. You just have to wait for it to be distributed. And and the way that it gets distributed is that the price goes up. Um, so people uh, are bidding Bitcoin up because they want to have, have a chunk of it, and that's going to help the, the, the supply to be distributed more over time. So I'm, I'm not at all concerned about this. This is just how uh, a, monetary gets, a monetary good gets distributed into a population. I, I agree, and we've seen that play out if you look at some of the on-chain indicators like hollow waves and things like that, where as a, as a really strong bull market occurs, the percentage of Bitcoin that are being held for the long term diminishes as some of those, you know, as people have 5x, 10x, 20x, you know, and sometimes more gains over their initial cost basis, they do start to sell out and upgrade their lifestyle or diversify their assets. Maybe they buy real estate, whatever the case may be, where, you know, if, if they had a certain percentage of their of their net worth in Bitcoin, now it's almost entirely Bitcoin and they want to go back to some other percentage that makes sense for, you know, their financial goals. Uh, and so that that is the practice of distributing Bitcoin over time. And it's, you know, I think it also depends on on what you're what you're trying to do with the protocol. And so, for example, if you were a leveraged trader, uh, you should be concerned about whales because at, you know, at, at any given time, those whales can do these, you know, attacks and they can, you know, fish around for, uh, you know, kind of different pain points and technical uh, points and basically uh, blow out your leverage and then get some of your coins from you. Uh, and so it basically, when you have a market that that's like that, it, that's a good case against being over leveraged and worrying about these short term moves because you know, that's one one reason I wouldn't want to do that is because of the whales. It's also just not how I how I invest in trade in general. Uh, but if you're a long term, uh, you know, uh, someone who's either dollar costing average in or just has a long term position as a percentage of your portfolio, uh, the whales would not be, uh, you know, uh, a concern I'd have. My my, my kind of long term, the things I'm watching as as you know uh, the real test for Bitcoin are how it develops a fee market and how it deals with the potential for nation state attacks 
later this you know th this decade. Uh, and so I'm not really concerned about uh, Chinese mining FUD or tether FUD or whale FUD. Uh, so it's kind of like you know there are risks out there, but there are some of them that I I, I just don't consider uh, very significant. Everyone has a time preference, right? Uh, and so that's how coins get distributed uh, over time. And I think if we had just, you know, tried to send 270,000 Satoshis to every person on the planet, uh, Bitcoin would not have worked. Uh, people would not have valued those Satoshis, right? Uh, free money is not something that uh, that is valued. So, okay, let's, let's move on to um, a topic that's hot right now. And I'd love to hear what both of you have to think about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, these are being used to um, basically create a certificate of authenticity or ownership for digital assets, digital goods, art. Uh, you know, there's uh, uh, athletes who are selling like clips or whatever of themselves or signed autographed art, um, et cetera. Um, so Vijay, let's start with you. Uh, are you know are these the, i'll just also just state that some of these are achieving some absolutely incredible prices uh this uh piece of art which was a collage uh made of 5000 smaller paintings that was done by a minnesota based artist named Beeple, uh sold for 69000 sorry 69 million dollars at christies uh last week i believe uh, so this is this is not something that's uh, to, to scoff at. This is a lot of money people are seriously investing and relying on NFTs to maintain digital scarcity for their uh, for this item. Do you uh, take this seriously? What are your thoughts on NFTs? Well, I'm very skeptical of them. Uh, I, I I would say I can't pretend to know exactly the mechanism by which they're being created, but I would say that NFTs. Uh, can be no more scarce than the, the underlying good that they're sort of representing title to. So the idea that you have NFTs of tweets seems almost absurd to me because if I do a tweet, I can just do the same tweet again. Uh, so it, it doesn't give you any sense of scarcity. Also, the fact that you can create title on multiple blockchains, uh, I, I don't understand why the title on one blockchain would necessarily be more valuable than another. Uh, to me, this really feels like kind of a speculative uh, frenzy where people have become pretty irrational. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, the ICO mania in 2017 when I, I remember uh, sitting in a meeting where someone was pitching the idea of uh, ICOing a company which had no product whatsoever and someone in the room asked how much they were looking to raise and they said $40 million. And everyone in the room kind of nodded seriously as if that was, that made sense. Uh, and to me, you know, in 2017, that was like a huge warning signal. Like this is, this is going to, this is going to end very badly. Uh, I mean, eventually ended badly. And uh, that was coming to sort of near the end of that bull market. Uh, so I, I, I find this quite worrying. Um, Ethereum seems to have this ability to create these new narratives every few years, the next hot thing, which turns out to be um, uh, really just a, a, an excellent means of destroying a huge amount of capital. If you look at the amount of capital that was destroyed 
through ICOs, it was gigantic. Billion, billions of dollars were destroyed that way. Uh, and, and my gut feeling is this, this is going to be the same thing. So, Lynn, uh, what do you think about this uh, NFT craze? Is it a bubble? Uh, does it have anything uh, serious behind it? Uh, is this a signal that there's just an absolutely desperate search for any form of scarcity right now? Uh, yeah, so I, I view it similarly, uh, and I've kind of approached this from a couple of angles. And so obviously collectibles themselves have value. I and mean, I, I have magic cards that are worth more than the cardboard they're printed on, right? I mean, you can, nice. there, there, there is there is like, you know, a, a, basically it would seem silly to someone on the outside, uh, but, you know, there are collectibles that have value. And now, the, but the question is with an NFT, you're betting on a couple things. One is, you know, as, as VJ pointed out, there's, it's, it's not necessarily real scarcity. Uh, and if you look at the, the traditional uh, art market, the fine art market, usually paintings become valuable after the artist dies. It's a sad case that it's often it's often the case that the artist doesn't become super rich from their work. It's usually you know later uh, because it's it's only when they passed away that their scarcity is you know basically proven. Uh, at that point, you know how many works they've done. Uh, even if there's like a you know a handful of hidden works somewhere, right? It's it's you know you, you have a certain amount. You're not you're not making more. You're not making copies from the original artist, and so that's when they tend to go up in value if they're if they're you know if they're good to begin with, and then the artist passes away. And so the problem with an NFT is that you're 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 partially you're going on the trust that the artist is not going to reissue the same artwork, uh, that they're not going to issue it on another blockchain. You're also betting on the long on the longevity of that blockchain that it's issued on, right? So you're you're you're, you're buying something. It's kind of like if an artist made a really good painting, but they but they did it on a on a, a canvas or a type of paint that is falling apart. Uh, it's it's kind of like that with a blockchain. You have to basically hope that the underlying blockchain is is secure enough. And if it's if it's if it's one of the other blockchains out there, like you know Ethereum, you're hoping that 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 protocol will still be the leading protocol in its niche. Uh, you know, uh, decades from now. Uh, and so uh, there are a lot of risks there. Now, there, there's interesting things. Like, for example, you can have a, a, a programming event where if someone then resells that that uh, NFT, the artist can still get a cut from that. And so the artist can benefit from the continued sale of their artwork. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm always in favor of, of ways they can find ways to, uh, you know, pay the original artists and basically have, give them different sort of means to monetize their work. Uh, but I do think that it at you know this stage in the cycle, it is getting kind of into the mania phase uh, where the majority of these artworks uh, are going to end up not being worth what they what they've been paid for in this cycle if you look out several years from now. Now there could be individual cases where uh, you know one of them in particular is is you know hold its value, uh, but it's I think it's a highly speculative area. and there are multiple issues like the fact that they can be reissued. Uh, and that you're you're also betting on the underlying blockchain itself. There are also record prices being paid for baseball cards, magic cards, uh, and some of these. I've been following just a few of these auction sites for cards and other collectibles, um, selling million dollar cards uh, on a regular basis. So this, to me, is is an indication that there's a desperate search for scarcity right now. Um, let's move into talking about the macro environment a little bit. Um, one thing I've noticed recently that's been talked about by you, Lynn, and others uh, is that treasury bill interest rates are rising. What does this mean for the macro environment? Does it have any 
like signal, providing a signal uh, about the Fed's control over monetary policy. Yeah, so it's specifically the long end of the curve, and so it's the Treasury bonds and the Treasury notes uh, that are rising. Uh, you know, as you as you go out longer on the duration spectrum, and so the Fed has strong control over the front end of the curve. They they're holding it near zero. Uh, and whereas the long end of the curve, like a 10-year treasury or 20-year treasury or 30-year treasury, those yields are going up. Uh, and so that's in some ways, that's that's basically what you'd want a healthy market to look like. You want to have longer, you want to have a positive yield curve, meaning that longer duration securities are uh, higher yielding than short-term uh, instruments. Uh, and the problem there is that because this, the economy is so levered, including the federal government, but then also private debt, uh, high interest rates, uh, you know, basically result in insolvency because this 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 kind of uh, you know forty year kind of secular bull market that we've we've built up in multiple asset classes is largely based on declining interest rates. And so, you know, if you have say uh, if your debt doubles but your interest rate gets cut in half, your interest payments are still the same. And so we we basically done that for for a few decades now, where we keep building up more and more debt, but because of all these disinflationary forces. Uh, we managed to keep paying lower and lower interest rates on that debt. And so overall, our debt servicing costs have remained relatively manageable. Uh, but as you get to a super high level and you get down to the zero bound and then you start to bounce up from that zero bound, uh, that interest uh, expense starts to really balloon. And so we're kind of seeing a, a, probably a bottoming process for interest, interest paid. And we're going to see more and more kind of uh, interest uh, payments by the federal government, by other entities. Uh, and if also, if you kind of do a discounted cash flow analysis, right? So if you're, say you're analyzing a company, uh, maybe it's Roku, it's, it's not profitable, but has a super long growth rate, you think, and you know, you're kind of modeling out what you should pay for this thing, uh, you know, it's partially going to depend on what your discount rate is. And so if you can, if you can instead put money in a, in a 10-year treasury and earn 6%, right, like you used to be able to, uh, then you're going to value Roku somewhat less uh, because your hurdle rate is pretty high. You're saying my risk-free investment is 6%. And so what I need a pretty high rate of return in order to bet on Roku. And so I, I want to get you know 15 or 20% uh, expected returns on my money over the long term if I'm going to take the risk of, of Roku versus buying a, a you know a treasury yielding 6%. But if the treasury yield is is you know, it was, it was down to half a percent last year. Now it's like, you know, over one and a half, but it's still super low by historical standards. Well, then what should I pay for Roku? I mean, if if, if I think, you know, Roku is going to grow a lot and I can get a, a 7% return on Roku, that's still way better than the treasury. And so I'm, I'm basically, as interest rates have gone down, investors have been willing to uh, highly value different types of assets because their their benchmark uh, discount rate is is super low, and so the risk is that as that benchmark rate rises, uh, suddenly all those really highly valued, unprofitable, hyper growth stocks they start getting valuation haircuts uh, because that that you know that comparable risk free alternative is, is going up, uh, and so we're weighing that playing out, uh, and of course that affects the housing market right because thirty year treasuries impact mortgage rates. Uh, because there's a spread there that you know it can change over time, but it, it's generally going to go in the same direction as a 30-year Treasury rate. Uh, and so, basically, rising rates are are kind of the the potential to pop this this asset bubble that we've had. And of course, rates are rising because naturally bondholders want to have positive real returns. They want to compensate for for any inflation that's happening. And so, their their natural force is to want to push up here. 
and the Fed still has tools. I mean, basically, people talk about the Fed losing control. Uh, it's more like they've they've chosen not to use control yet because using control comes with a lot of consequences. And so, for example, the the scenario that I often point to is the 1940s of yield curve control, where the United States and other countries were fighting World War II. That was the only other time United States debt to GDP, uh, government debt to GDP, got as high as it is now, over 100% of GDP. And what the Fed, what the Federal Reserve did was they said, okay, we're going to cap the entire uh, yield curve at 2.5% or less. So the short end of the yield curve was capped at like a third of a percent. The long end was capped at 2.5%. Inflation, you know, went as high as double digits multiple times in that decade, but they still held uh, treasury yields flat. And they did that by being willing to buy any treasuries uh, that get, that go over that percentage. Uh, but of course, there's no free lunch. So the re the release valve of doing that is that you kill your currency, right? Because you're you're, you're holding cash and bonds that are yielding between zero and and, and two and a half percent, while inflation is doing whatever it's doing, and it's much higher level than that uh, back in that in that period. And so it also, you know, the Federal Reserve during that that 40s, once they started that, it's really hard to get out of. And so they basically gave up their independence uh, for basically about a decade. And so they've, you know, the Federal Reserve's kind of identified that period. They've talked about it. They've talked about it being an option, but it's 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 kind of their nuclear option. It's one of the last things they want to do is is kind of formal yield curve control across the whole duration spectrum. And we're seeing it play out in a limited sense in Australia, for example. So they're doing yield curve control on their three-year treasury, uh, and it's taken a lot of balance sheet expansion and and other efforts as well in order to maintain that peg that they're targeting. Uh, and so the, the Fed is, you know, they have that option available to them, but it's it's not without cost. So, VJ, um, we've seen like, you know, the Fed and the federal government uh, reports regularly on these kind of economic measures and statistics. Uh, recently, I believe we saw the Fed end its M2 money supply reporting. Is that right, Lynn? Uh, that so that was somewhat misreported, and so basically they okay. ended they ended one of their weekly reports. They have a they have a different weekly report that they're still doing. It's the not seasonally adjusted one, and then also they still have their their full monthly reporting. Uh, and so uh, they still uh, have most of the money supply available uh, to to report, but they've they've uh, you know cut off some of their reporting. Uh, a, a, another problematic thing is that uh, they changed the definition of what M1 is. Uh, that's it's part of the reason I never I never actually cite M1. I always prefer M2. M1 is a narrower, uh, uh, you know, chunk of the money supply, uh, and they, you know, I didn't really like it before. I didn't find it super useful, uh, but after this change, it's even more useless because it's almost the same thing as M2 now. They basically they basically added components that are normally in M2. They're not in M1, and they added those to M1, and so M1 is almost as big as M2 now. And so if you're doing historical comparisons, you're, you're comparing apples to bicycles. And so that that M1 is basically useless now. Uh, M2 I still think is useful, and it still is reported, uh, just in a in a slightly different, uh, you know, a slightly different format. Okay, so there's this trend. This obviously based on that explanation, governments change these measures on a regular basis. And for instance, VJ the CPI, um, you know, is changed on a regular basis. We can't I, we can't really rely on it as uh, a measure over time of economic health. Um, do you rely, I mean, do you find these reliable at all? And do you have some source of uh, non-governmental economic measurements that you look to to try to understand what the fundamentals are of, of the American and global economy? 
Well, I, yeah, you know, I think the problem with CPI is that inflation is always subjective. Uh, so d depending on what your lifestyle is, inflation may be very high or it might be fairly low. If you're, if you're like a, uh, a bachelor, a single person living in, in a, a condo and all you're doing is watching Netflix and buying gadgets, then maybe inflation is low for you. But if you're, uh, you know, uh, someone who has children and, and you're doing a long commute and you have to buy necessities for your kids, uh, food, and you have to pay a lot for, for gas, then inflation may, may be much higher for you. And, and certainly there's been a lot of uh, asset price inflation. Um, interestingly, I think it's the monetary goods, the, the non-sovereign monetary goods, which give you a good sense of what uh, money supply inflation looks like. Uh, and famously, Alan Greenspan used to say that he would set monetary policy based on the price of gold. If gold went up, he'd tighten monetary policy. And if gold went down, he would loosen monetary policy. Uh, so, I, you know, I think Bitcoin is going to take that role uh, in the future. Um, I, I just want to make one, also one comment on, on what Lynn said. I think she gave a great summary um, about the macro environment. My view is that what's happening right now is really a big unwinding of the COVID trade. Um, when when COVID kind of broke out and the market recognized it was going to be this large pandemic uh, and, and the government the government response to the pandemic was to, to shut major economies down across the world. That was a very, very deflationary event uh, when it happened. I think it was March or April uh, 2020. It's very deflationary because it just absolutely obliterated income streams across the the uh, economy, and you need these income stream streams to service debt. So without these income streams, all these you get defaults on all this debt across the economy. The Fed, now, now the Fed's response to this was a very very inflationary policy combined with the Treasury, I should say. Uh, and this is kind of different to what happened in 2008, where the Federal Reserve tried to uh, stimulate the economy by affecting the long end of the yield curve by using quantitative easing, by buying long bonds, because they had run out of weapons on the short end of the yield curve uh, with with uh, interest rates on short-term treasuries dropping to zero. There wasn't really much they could do. They couldn't make them go negative. Well, you can't without going to extreme measures. Uh, but but the the difference is that quantitative quantitative easing isn't necessarily inflationary. When when the Fed prints money to buy long term bonds, that money sits as excess reserves in the banking system, and it's only inflationary if the banks decide that they want to lend that money out. And during the financial crisis of two thousand eight, most of the banks didn't want to lend because there weren't good lending opportunities, and they were the lending standards had been increased through legislation, and the banks were also terrified to lend at that time. So all that money that was created didn't do anything. It's, sort of, it's like printing a trillion dollars and burying it under the ground. That's not going to be inflationary. Um, but what's happening now is actually quite different. The, the, the creation of money is much more inflationary because they're essentially doing what uh, Ben Bernanke and Milton Friedman called a helicopter copter drop of money, which is they're just giving money to people directly with these stimulus checks. Uh, so this is money that's being dropped directly into the economy, into the hands of people who are going to spend it. Uh, so I think what the market is doing is is 
uh, unwinding the COVID trade and saying, whoa, okay, we're, we're out of this deflation risk. Probably by summer, most of the population or a very large chunk is going to be uh, vaccinated. People's expectations for uh, what their behavior is going to change very rapidly and the, the economy is going to come roaring back and all of this extra money that uh, is sort of sloshing around in the economy is going to drive prices up very quickly. Um, so I think the market is unwinding the COVID trade very rapidly. And because of what Lynn said, I think she gave a great expectation uh, explanation. Um, you have to reprice stocks and financial assets when the interest rate goes up. It's kind of, it's the yardstick for all assets. Uh, it's how you, it's the basis of discounted cash flow analysis. And when, when the, the yield on the United States Treasury, which is probably the most important financial indicator in the market, when that rises dramatically, that's going to cause major dislocations in the market that, that will affect everything. Uh, so that is what I think is happening right now. The market's sort of seeing that we, we are probably going to get go into a period of inflation. Once those dislocations happen, that's usually when I think you will see movements in um, the, the monetary goods that are sensitive to inflation. So I expect once these dislocations are over, once the, uh, the long end of the bond sort of uh, stabilizes a little bit, then you're going to see uh, a, a, a much more movement in Bitcoin and gold. So do we see this money coming into the market more than we did in 2008 through, for instance, banks loaning out for real estate? I mean, real estate's market is, is just incredibly hot right now. Housing prices just about everywhere in the country uh, are you know, extremely high, surprisingly high. Uh, building costs are high. Is this because we're seeing money uh, from this quantitative printing uh, come into the market through bank lending, Lynn? Uh, so this, it's not from bank lending right now. It's from the federal government handing it out. And so I thought BJ gave a, a great explanation. Uh, and this has been a, a key part of my work over the past year. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's it's something that, that Ray Daly has been pointing out is going gonna, is gonna to happen ahead of time. So even before the pandemic, there have been analysts like, like them and some others uh, and I was picking on this up as well, most because of, of these uh, sources of inspiration, uh, where, uh, you know, as he pointed out, in, in 2008, all, the whole purpose was to recapitalize the banking system and basically prevent uh, a deflationary implosion and massive cascades of default. And so they, they created new base money, they traded it for some of the assets of those banks, uh, and so that recapitalized the banking system, but you didn't see a broad rise in the money supply. You know, if you, if you looked at a chart of year-over-year -year money supply growth, there's basically there's there's there, that that period was not unusual at all, uh, because banks weren't lending more, and the overall uh, fiscal response uh, to the public was pretty low. I mean, they got things like cash for clunkers. They got these little like uh, kind of token uh, fiscal injections rather than these giant things that we're seeing now. So if you fast forward to 2020. Uh, you know, they're doing not just stimulus checks, but also uh, federal unemployment benefits, PPP loans to turn into grants, uh, a larger scale uh, kind of industry bailouts of like restaurants and things like that. And so that's that's greatly increasing the broad money supply. Uh, and so during the pandemic, because velocity was low, because people couldn't really do much, uh, you know, money goes wherever, uh, you know, whatever towards whatever is scarce. And so that went into financial assets, like things, you know, it piled into gold, it piled into Bitcoin, it piled into tech stocks, it piled into art, it, it, collectibles like we talked about, it piled into all sorts of things. And now that the economy is reopening, 
uh, you know, we're getting commodity uh, inflation again. It, it, so some of that is pouring back into commodities. And so we're getting another round of checks coming out uh, here in March. And so overall, basically, we're, we're, you know, we're in that period where you have uh, that, pr that pretty high money supply. And one thing I point out is that, you know, when the money, when the money supply goes up, you're going to have inflation somewhere. And the only question is where it's going to show up. And so if, if basically, if you have commodity abundance, right? So if you have no shortage of commodities, uh, if you have very high uh, deflation from technology growth or offshoring and things like that, then it's unlikely to show up in CPI, but it's, it's going to show up instead in asset prices. Uh, however, if you have commodity shortages, if you have supply chain issues, uh, if you have kind of a reshoring of labor, if you have if, the, if you have the some more inflationary forces, uh, then you're more likely to get uh, you know actual uh, consumer good inflation, uh, and that pushes up yields and, and can put some pressure on asset prices. Unless like we talked about before, unless they do yield curve control, then you, you can get both types of inflation at the same time. Uh, and so overall, that's you know basically I think that's that's where we're at now is that we're we're kind of we, we've had the the really quick burst of only asset price inflation. Now we're shifting into a little bit more broad inflation. Uh, and so overall, I, I would expect uh, some of the commodities to continue to do well long term here, whether it's the industrial commodities or gold or Bitcoin, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, whereas some of these really high flying tech stocks are, are somewhat under pressure from those rising yields and those uh, inflationary forces. And uh, one thing to be aware of is that there's 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 base effects. And so basically, when you're measuring inflation, you're comparing it to a year ago, usually. Like they report their consumer price index, and then they report how high it is compared to the last year. And so if you're comparing, say, February to February, right? So February 2021 to February 2020. So the CPI was actually reasonably high back in February 2020. And so the year-over-year -year base effect is a pretty hard comparison. Uh, whereas if you, if you look into what happened in March, April, and especially April and May, CPI took a pretty big dip. And so now when you when you compare April to April or May to May, that's actually going to be a pretty big gap, most likely. There's, there's a decent chance you're going to get a headline CPI print of over 3%, uh, while at the same time, while bond yields are like 1.6% for the 10-year. And so we do have later this spring some, you know, kind of, I think, indigestion coming to the bond market. We're going to see how they navigate that because a lot of people are aware of base effects, but also a lot of people aren't. And there's also, you know, it, basically the, the sentiment can change and we'll see what bond yields want to do when we're getting the potential for 3% 3 CPI prints. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I was just wondering, based on, I was looking, you know, looking at housing prices, if, if maybe bank lending had also an effect on the inflation that we're seeing right now. Uh, but it sounds like it's mainly um, money that's coming, you know, straight into the market uh, through stimulus and uh, spending and and, uh, and the like. Straight that's the, to, that's the yeah. Yeah, that's the biggest source of it. And there's there's a couple of different bursts. So right when the pandemic hit, you saw an increase in revolver lending. And so basically corporations have these revolver lines with banks mm -hmm. where it's kind of like their credit card. Uh, and uh, they basically do that for liquidity if they need it in the short term. And so when when the when the pandemic was hitting, every corporation decided, you know, oh no, we need we need cash in our balance sheet. We don't know what's gonna mm -hmm. happen. So pretty much every corporation drew on their revolver lines. Uh, and so you actually saw the spike in in in, in corporate revolving credit, uh, yeah. but a, as that played out, as as they kind of assessed the damage and as we started to get some visibility, they they you know started putting those revolver lines back. And you know we have had a, a like a, a strong housing uh, a boom, and so you can have these little pockets of lending, but you don't see, for example, overall bank lending going up dramatically. It's primarily uh, the the in this in this cycle, at least, it's primarily the the fiscal uh, spending. 
Whereas if yeah. you look back in, in history, uh, to Vijay's point, that's when, you know, bank lending is the key thing. And that's, you know, if you're going back to Friedman's days uh, and, and the Greenspan days, uh, because deficits were, were a smaller percentage of GDP, uh, that the money creation was was almost entirely with the, the bank lending uh, practices. Whereas only when you look at, say, the 1940s, or when you look at here in, in the 2020s, that's when you see a lot of, a big chunk of money creation is happening because of fiscal deficits. So it's, it's, it's an atypical period in history. Okay, that makes sense. All right, I want to talk about this phenomenon that we're seeing of uh, coins being taken off exchanges. It's um, something that is uh, really peculiar to in the history of Bitcoin. I'll show the chart real quick. There's a glass node chart. Um, so as you can see, uh, we peaked at around what a little over 3 million coins on exchange. And since April of 2020, we've seen a plummet. And we've never seen, this chart doesn't go back very far, but uh, far enough to see this. But we haven't seen uh, this kind of drawdown in coins available on exchanges as we've seen such a price spike. Um, so the question then is, do we what what are your what's your hypothesis for this uh is it people taking out, uh, coins off exchanging and holding or is it people taking coins off exchange to put into you know yield products for instance um what do you think bj well one thing that i find really interesting is if you compare this to prior cycles in particular um the 2013 2017 cycles as the price increased the number of coins on exchanges increased at the same time and i think part of that is just the distribution of ownership um i think in those pr previous cycles most of the people buying bitcoin were retail investors and many of them perhaps didn't have the sophistication to look into self-custody and they they just wanted to have someone do the custody for them uh, and I think that's particularly true of 2017. I think this cycle is really characterized in terms of the 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 volume of uh, the the large purchases that are happening are coming from institutions and and corporations, and and these institutions have a much greater capability to um, pay someone to figure out custody for them or to employ. Uh, a, a, a regulated custodian and they're probably moving their coins off the exchanges onto a regulated custodian. Um, so I think that's part of it. Probably part of it is, is also, as you're saying, that the movement of coins onto uh, uh, yield-bearing services like BlockFi or Genesis. Um, but my gut feeling is when you look at the movement of the chunks that are coming off the exchanges, it really feels to me like institutional buying and institutions moving those coins that they've purchased off exchange. I agree. Lindy, that, go ahead. Yeah, this, this is something I'm watching because there's a lot of indicators. It, it's funny how how kind of algorithmic Bitcoin is. And so a lot of these indicators, on-chain indicators, you can look back in history and see things playing out almost exactly. Uh, but the one thing that's playing out very uniquely is this drawdown in coins. And so if you look back in history, if you look at the longer version of that chart, there, there was only a, you know, there's only a one other period where you had a pretty significant drawdown in coins, but even then it wasn't anywhere as long or as significant as this one was. Uh, for the most part, the amount of coins on exchanges only kept going up over time. And so part of that is just from the maturity of the protocol, like as we get closer to the, the, the you know, most of the Bitcoins being mined, uh, you know, there's only so many coins that can be on exchanges at any given time. Uh, and so we're, we, we, we might've hit the, the the long-term peak for that number. And then I think uh, I fully agree with, with uh, VJ that a lot of this is due to institutional buying. 
and you can do a catalog of, of some of these buyers. And so, for example, we know how much Grayscale bought. We know how much MicroStrategy bought. Uh, we have reports, uh, you know, NIDIG, uh, the, the amount of money that's going in there. We know that Fidelity uh, is custodying, uh, you know, coins for a lot of people. There are funds like SkyBridge uh, that are custodying. I, th I think they use Fidelity as their custodian. Uh, then you have international versions. I mean, Singapore's largest bank is getting into custody. And so you're seeing uh, basically the conversion of liquid Bitcoin into illiquid Bitcoin, cold storage Bitcoin. And then, of course, you also have people like, uh, you know, uh, like the Swan, like the people on Swan that are just dollar cost averaging, automatically withdrawing from uh, from your custodian uh, and self-custodying. And so basically the, the combination of retail hodlers uh, and the institutional, uh, you know, kind of movement uh, to do it, basically buy into it and then secure it in a, in a kind of a cold storage way uh, is, is just drawing out uh, all those liquid Bitcoin. Yeah, I find it fascinating. Um, do you think that these institutions are going to be more likely to hold for the long term, or do you think that they will, uh, you know, also, you know, continue to denominate these gains in fiat and take gains, let's say, you know, after a 10x increase or something like that? Do they have a price target, and are they going to sell? I think it depends on the on the type. So you have like the micro strategies that are, you know, super hardcore about it. Uh, you've had some instances of funds where they they buy into it and then they rebalance. So we had a case where uh, a fund bought into it. They they did very well, but they're pressured by shareholders, and then they uh, you know they they sold you know kind of their initial cost basis and letting their gains run. Uh, and you know naturally, it, it, so as Bitcoin becomes more of a, a traditional asset, like something that a lot of people want to hold, uh, then you, you you can expect some degree of rebalancing. And so they they say, okay, I want to have a five percent allocation. Uh, if it goes up to seven percent, they might dial it back. If it if it dips and it goes down to three percent, they might dial it back up. Uh, and so, uh, basically, those long-term uh, institutions, some of them might hold it permanently, uh, and others might tweak around a, a pretty persistent uh, kind of allocation percentage. Depends on the on the on the type. So you have endowments, you have pensions, you have insurance companies, you have corporate balance sheets, you have hedge funds, you have family offices. This is uh, basically it's it's a collection of of very different types of entities. All right, VJ. I want to finish up as we're running out of time here with a tweet that you made um, recently. It says, "This may be the first generation in centuries to bemoan the cultural and economic decay caused by their elders, rather than the other way around." Uh, that is a powerful statement. Why do you think that is, and what do you think about uh, the prospects for future generations to turn that around? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the first generations where people growing up in Western countries may not enjoy a standard of living that is as good or better than their parents. And sort of, you know, since the Enlightenment, every generation uh, had a better standard of living than, than the previous one, the Industrial Revolution, and then there was the Information Technology Revolution, and standards of living have just gone up and up and up. But, you know, when I look at the current generation, millennials and, and the generation after them, a lot of them are still struggling to be able to buy their own house, to, to get out of the home from their parents. Uh, and, and if you look at the gap between the amount of savings that are held by boomers and, and millennials, there's this gigantic gap uh, between the two. And, and part, partly this is boomers benefiting from uh 
holding and owning assets during this, as, as Lynn called it, a 40-year secular bull market and having huge benefit of this policy of in, increasingly low infra, interest rates and, and, the, and the green span put every time the market corrected, the, the Fed would step in and, and fix it. Um, and, and, and sort of building up this massive pile of debt at, at all levels of government and all levels of society. And that debt is eventually going to have to be paid paid down or defaulted on. And that, that's the burden that's being sort of dumped on the next generation. Um, and, and, and when I sort of look, look to the future, I think Bitcoin provides uh, millennials an opportunity to close that wealth gap. The, the monetization of Bitcoin would be a huge event because just in general, it's something that millennials have understood and is much more intuitive to them than than their parents' generation. They're much more likely to hold savings in Bitcoin than they are to hold savings in other things like gold, for instance, or, or stocks. So I think the monetization of Bitcoin would be fantastic uh, for future generations. I think it would create a much sounder monetary base on which to build a, a new and vibrant economy. Uh, and and millennials will benefit just by holding Bitcoin and seeing their savings increase in value relative to other things whose monetary premium, I think, is eventually going to drain away and, 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 and move into Bitcoin. Beautiful. Uh, I agree completely. Lynn, do you have any closing words, maybe following up on what Vijay had to say there? And then please let us know where uh, we can find more about you and your work. Yeah, so if you look back, uh, this, this touches on, uh, you know, the fourth turning dynamic. And, and I know uh, 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 Brandon at Swan has talked about that. He's, he's has that excellent piece on it. Uh, and basically, you know, it's, it's the idea that roughly every four generations, uh, which I think not co not coincidentally uh, corresponds to the long-term debt cycle that was popularized by people like Ray Dalio, uh, where you have kind of a, a reset of, you know, interest rates, you have a reset of institutions and things like that. And so that kind of pushback between generations is, is really common during that period. And I think we're going through it now. And so, you know, it, it is something to be aware of that, you know, the 2020s decade is just in many ways very different than, than the previous, you know, three to five business cycles. And instead, it's a, it's a much kind of larger unfolding that we're, that we're going through, uh, basically a very, a very big structural shift in, in debt and, and interest rates and things like that. And so it, it basically it is, it is a challenging environment to navigate. Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, it keeps me busy just because there's, there's already there's so many moving factors to be aware of. It's like rising interest rates, but then how will the Fed respond and how will different asset classes, uh, you know, balance? What's what's Bitcoin going to do and kind of just modeling through all of this. Uh, and so uh, you know, I'm available at lindalden.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. And so thanks again for having me. Thanks so much for being here. And Vijay, any closing words you might have for our audience and uh, let us know where we can find you and your work. Go buy some Bitcoin and uh, go go read some of Lynn's articles. They're fantastic. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm real underscore VJ. Uh, I'm, I'm coming out with a book soon, which is sort of an expansion and updating of my article, what we call the bullish case for Bitcoin. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, yeah, go, go buy yourself some Bitcoin. <laughs> And I recommend That's everyone. It. I recommend everyone read his article, "The Bullish Case for Bitcoin." Uh, it, it, you know, it's, I think it's it's kind of required reading for anyone who's in the space. I would I would highly recommend people. If there's that, if there's like anyone in the audience that hasn't, he certainly should. <laughs> 
Yes, absolutely agree. It's uh, at the top of the of the list uh, when new coiners come into the space. You want to learn about Bitcoin, goes through the history of money, puts everything in context as to why Bitcoin is important, why Bitcoin is is basically the opposite of fiat money, uh, and why a future, a Bitcoin future, could be a lot brighter than the one that uh, we have now based on fiat money. Um, so fantastic. This was a great pairing. I'm glad we were able to get the two of you together. Appreciate both of you and your time. Uh, amazing to hear that VJ's got a book uh, on the way. That's going to be fantastic. And uh, we'll all have to uh, check that out. And VJ, will have to have you back to talk about your book. Uh, so thank you again to both of you. And uh, we will finish up here with uh, a little bit more about Swan Bitcoin. Thank you guys so much for being here. It's super important that you're here. Uh, you are here at the beginning of, or you know, relative beginning of something revolutionary, I believe, and we believe at Swan. Uh, we believe that Bitcoin will allow you to own your future, whereas right now we have 70% or something absurd like that of people in this country with little to no savings. And even if that savings were were present, uh, it would be uh, devaluing at an incredibly fast rate so that the purchasing power of your savings would basically be gone uh, after you know just a, a decade or two uh, inflated away. So uh, we believe that Bitcoin offers uh, an alternative, uh, an escape route from this extremely difficult situation that we find ourselves in and allows people to accumulate wealth and hold on to the purchasing power of that wealth over time so that you can actually have a future so that you can uh, escape this nine to five plus then like five to nine or 10 working all day, two jobs just to kind of keep up with this fiat rat race uh, and, and stop enriching only the, you know, 1%, the very, very richest uh, of, of, the, of our country, of our world, uh, that, that money printing benefits only really those those people uh, at the very top of the wealth spectrum uh, the you know they get uh, very low interest money uh, they can uh, buy up assets that are wealth generating and are actually scarce and preserve their wealth over time whereas most of us do not have access to or the ability to purchase uh, assets like this that would retain our wealth over time so with Bitcoin we do have access to a scarce asset that will retain wealth over time and that is why we encourage you uh, wholeheartedly to own your future, to pay yourself in Bitcoin, you deserve to pay yourself your, you know, your spending limited time, the most precious asset that you have uh, in the world, uh, to uh, earn fiat money that does not wreck that time, that loses purchasing power of that time that you have dedicated to earning it over time, over uh, over a period of, of years and decades. Bitcoin respects your time. Uh, so pay yourself in Bitcoin, start dollar cost averaging, go to swanbitcoin.com. Uh, we make it super easy and uh, and offer this service at the lowest uh, lowest fees in the, in the industry, uh, United States for auto stacking. And that's what uh, we, we like to refer to as dollar cost averaging. We call it auto stacking. You know, attach your bank account uh, and just let us automatically buy Bitcoin for you every day, every week, every month, whatever you decide. Uh, just figure out what you want to save uh, every month and dedicate that to your uh, to purchasing Bitcoin on a regular basis. Uh, and if you had done so over the past uh, three years, you would have seen you know hundreds of percent increase uh, in your savings. 
Um, and that that's what we're talking about. So not only does Bitcoin preserve your wealth, but it also is adding to your wealth because we're at a relatively early stage of Bitcoin becoming a monetary asset, a global monetary asset. And we're at a point now in Bitcoin's history that's uh, really incredible, super exciting as really big players in the space who uh, understand the global economy, understand how money works, are buying Bitcoin for very good reason. So uh, that is a signal that Bitcoin is here to stay, that it's the only digital asset that's a real player on the monetary stage and that you should be just focusing on and dedicating uh solely you know your savings to bitcoin uh you don't have to worry about anything else just buy some bitcoin you can learn about it because you'll be interested in learning more about it uh, we also are very dedicated to bitcoin education here at swan so as you are stacking we want to bring you along uh that bitcoin journey and uh you know create uh, an understanding for you so that you can help bring in your friends and family uh, you can go to swanbitcoin.com enlist to enlist for the Swan Force. That's our referral program growing by like 100 people a day at this point, uh, where you can save or you can earn uh, money for recruiting Bitcoiners, including your friends and family, 25% uh, of Swan's fees for three years. Fantastic deal. We have lots of people on the Swan Force who are uh, stacking a lot of sats that will mean a lot to them in the future. And finally, just want to let everyone know who's watching, we have... Uh, are available now internationally with wire transfers. So you can check out swanbitcoin.com slash private. Let us know that you're interested in accumulating a meaningful position uh, uh, with wire transfers into your account at Swan, and uh, we will get you set up. So it's really exciting that we can now operate uh, internationally with our Swan private offering. Uh, so let us know uh, that you are interested to joining Swan and, and uh, our team and our dedication to educating you, uh, an extremely uh, fantastic customer service. Uh, and we would love to have you as part of the Swan Squad. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on Swan Signal Live. Take care. Thanks to Lynn and VJ for joining us today. You can find Lynn on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. That's L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N Contact. And VJ is on Twitter at Real underscore VJ. That's R-E-A-L underscore V-I-J-A-Y. I am at Citizen Bitcoin on Twitter, and you'll find Swan at Swan Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast and found it useful. It's fun to join us live on the YouTube broadcasts at youtube.com slash swansignal. Head over there, subscribe, turn on your notifications. We have a lot of fun in the live chat, and we often work in some questions from listeners. Remember to check out Bitcoin TV while you're there. We're uploading a big batch of fresh content. It's the best Bitcoin content available on the web, streaming 24-7. You can subscribe to this podcast if you're not already at swansignalpodcast.com, swansignal is a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin in the United States.